regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad that you are with us on the program today. Coming up in just a matter of moments, going to be talking with Dr. Robert Young with Doctors for Responsible Gun Ownership about a uh, brand new study showing that in the uh, opening weeks of the pandemic, seems so long ago now, back in March, you remember when all those uh, stay-at-home orders were starting to be issued and we saw the first surge in gun sales across the country? Well, a new study from the uh, University of Toledo and the University of New Mexico indicates that a sizable number of those uh, standing in line at their local gun stores were healthcare workers. Yeah. Which kind of makes some sense if you think about it. I mean, if you, again, go back to where we were in uh, in March of this year and think about um, how scary it was, right? As particularly, you know, if you were living in Seattle or New York City where the cases were spiking, the hospitals were, uh, we were told, close to being overwhelmed. Uh, there was this grave concern that, uh, that, that, the, that, that we were living in not just uncertain times, but we were living in unknown times. We didn't know what was going to happen next. And if you're working in the healthcare industry, you were probably more exposed to that than the average person who was, again, hunkered down in their home and still experiences in a very different way. Uh, but it's not entirely surprising to me that uh, we had a number of healthcare workers who were among those uh, buying firearms. What does Dr. Young think about this? And what kind of impact might this have on the gun debate going forward if we have an influx of healthcare workers who are now exercising their Second Amendment rights? We spoke about it with a good doctor. Take a look and a listen. Dr. Young, thanks so much for coming to the program. It's great talking with you today, sir. Great to be back with you, Sam. How have you been? I've been pretty good. Uh, how about you? Very good. Excellent. Uh, aside from waiting through this uh, pandemic, we're all hoping with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the pandemic, this is a, an interesting study uh, that uh, our friend Stephen Gataski wrote about at the Washington Free Beacon. It's a... Uh, it's a study from uh, a couple of different uh, uh, universities. I guess you've got uh, uh, the University of New Mexico and then the University of Toledo. Uh, took a look at at who purchased guns uh, in the early days of the pandemic, the first few weeks of the pandemic. So they're not looking from you know March through October, but they're they're just kind of looking basically in March. And what they found was that being a healthcare provider. Uh, was one of the strongest predictors of buying a gun uh, during the opening weeks of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. In fact, uh, according to this study, uh, some 67%, uh, according to Stephen Gataski, of the people who reported buying a gun during the pandemic also reported being healthcare professionals. Now, I, that that number seems a little high to me, Dr. Young, but uh, what, but what do you make of the idea that as these lockdowns were going into effect, as the cases were surging in, in hospitals uh, around the country, that healthcare professionals were among the most likely gun buyers. It, I would never uh, have assumed that to begin with, although in retrospect, after some personal experiences, I, I perfectly well understand that. The, um, there are two aspects to, the, to this, I guess, the uh, profession and the immediate circumstances. And 
uh, among healthcare, well, first of all, for healthcare professionals at large, healthcare personnel, this broad occupational category actually has the highest risk of being assaulted than any occupational category in America. This is something that the ODL has been concerned about always, and why we, one of the reasons we so advocate that our co-professionals uh, be equipped to defend themselves too, because they are the number one targets among all occupations. Within that, uh, you find logically that ER personnel are the number one targets. People come in, they've been released generally from uh, police management, and then it's up to the ER staff to manage them. For some of these people are violent for medical, metabolic, or psychiatric reasons, and, and they will, uh, they will survive. The other, uh, category of note, to me at least, as a psychiatrist, is that among physicians, psychiatrists are the most vulnerable and the most often targeted for assault by patients. Um, that goes along with uh, our reporting. Uh, every time we hear about a uh, someone violent attacking uh, someone's private office, a clinic, um, hospitals get attacked. That's, uh, that happens worldwide. So that's the background uh, with, with which um, this study might be interpreted. We are at risk, and we should be arming ourselves. Is Secondly, this? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no it's okay. I'm, I'm going to get to the circumstances next. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, is this something that that you've yeah. seen in your professional network uh, over the past, you know, again six or seven months? Have you had uh, colleagues or or individuals who kind of know you to be a pro Second Amendment guy uh, come up to you and, and ask, you know, hey, Doc, uh, thinking about buying a gun for the first time? Have you had any of those conversations? Oh, sure. Uh, and uh, I, I've always had those conversations. And uh, I'm always willing to uh, start a conversation. <laughs> too, anybody I think might be might be open to it. Uh, some of the places I would, uh, of course, outlaw guns. But on the, uh, in private conversation, the, the people who are actually in charge of security shake their heads and say, oh, gosh, it's a terrible policy. I guess we didn't have to do that. So yeah, I have these conversations all the time. Um, in my own experience, um, this is over the years, but I'm just one person. So, uh, multiply that by many, many, many thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in, uh, health, uh, health care Um, one of my colleagues had a patient kill himself by uh, shooting himself in his office. That easily could have gone either way. Uh, I had a patient, well, I was not present that day, but I had a patient who presented to the waiting room of the clinic I was in, pulled out a knife and uh, sliced his throat. Again, that could have gone either way. Either way, it's a tragedy. Either way, it's someone who brought a deadly weapon in to a vulnerable place where no one is protected and used it. So things like that happen all the time. Yeah. The, the, con- the circumstances I referred to then is the, what, uh, the, what was the case at the beginning of this epidemic, uh, March, April, as we were all discovering how, how awful serious it was. Now, 
a lot of New York, New York City, particularly, asked for help. Uh, healthcare professionals from around the country, and even more so from elsewhere in New York State, where I live, uh, answered that call and volunteered to come and work in New York City in the heart of the epidemic, risking themselves and their families with it, in order to, to serve the needs of all those people who are getting sick and for whom there were not enough steps for them here. Um, a, a lot of them, once, uh, a lot of them, of course, weren't familiar with the fact that New York City is a, essentially a no-gun zone mm-hmm. for, for law-abiding people. Uh, even in outstate New York, where I live, where it's easier, it, it makes it's a, it is a distinctly different jurisdiction in those terms, and uh, people plus people may not realize that. So people, um, some sometimes after they got there, and sometimes before they got there, started wondering, well, wait a minute, this is society is breaking down there. I want to go help. It's my duty. It's my mission. But can't I at least protect myself? And the answer, of course. There's no any substantial there. Uh, one of my patients is a nurse who went to this to self-serve. Other people I heard from in New York City who are already there. Hey, Dr. Young, I'm sorry. Can I ask you to speak up concern. just a little bit? You're, yeah. you're getting a little quiet yes, on this. I apologize. That's okay. Um, okay. Uh, so, And people I knew in New York City already had that same concern heightened. So those are the circumstances. So it, with all that, I'm not the least bit surprised to hear that a lot of people in my segment of the uh, vocational population have decided it really matters to be armed in order to protect themselves. I'm very glad to hear that. What kind of impact uh, do you think that this can have on the debate going forward? Um, I know in this study, just looking, they, they did ask the, uh, the question, uh, do you think firearm laws in the United States should be more strict? Uh, are they're about right or they should be less strict. Um, and of those who did purchase a firearm, now this is not just healthcare professionals, but all those that they surveyed who did purchase a gun uh, in the first couple of weeks of the uh, pandemic, 57% said they thought that uh, gun law should be more strict. Uh, 35% said they thought it was about right. 8% said they thought it was less strict. Uh, those who didn't buy a gun, 72% said that they thought uh, we need uh, more restrictive gun control laws. Twenty-one percent said they're about right. Six percent said uh, less strict. Uh, so the the support for gun control clearly less among those who purchased a firearm. You might expect that, but uh, are, are are we starting to see, um, you know, some discussions within the the uh, healthcare community uh, about these what what these gun laws uh, uh, you know might look like and and what exactly it is that people are advocating for uh, are they still uh, demanding you know the the old school gun bans magazine bans universal background checks those laws that uh, ultimately are enforced by law enforcement officers that uh, that lead to arrests that lead to uh, prison time uh, because it seems to me like more generally we're starting to see maybe a little bit of a split even among uh, uh, gun control groups about what the priority should be. Should it be those types of punitive measures or should it be more, you know, community violence intervention things that that don't target legal gun owners but actually aim to address those who are committing violent crimes? Well, whether for political reasons right now or because it's sincere, we are no, we are seeing that the uh, pro-restrictionist uh, segments of, of our policy are tending to ad- not to stop advocating gun bans. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know why. 
it's it's a good thing at the moment, and I hope they continue talking that way because there are a lot of better approaches to reducing violence in this country, uh, including having better armed and hopefully trained citizens. Now, your statistic is interesting to me because I was under the impression that in general, uh, more and more people than that um, actually are starting to see that gun laws are already restricted as a function of so many people uh, becoming new gun owners and often having to get them. Your, uh, your, your ears closer to the end on the general uh, data that I'm sure can. Uh, as to conversations in, uh, in my profession, a really big one that DRGO is in the middle of is advocating not just for individuals in their individual practices in uh, work being on defense. But the problem that, that we face with hospitals, big, big clinics, um, which have hundreds or thousands of patients and personnel who are essentially unprotected against the possibility of a terrorist event. These things have happened in hospitals all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of our special uh, uh, missions to try to convince our world that it's vital to protect with arms, with trained, ideally trained people, but with staff if, uh, if need be and feasible against that. Because even though hospitals are more locked down than usual right now, and they have just one or two instances and maybe more. That's, that's nothing to uh, confront a couple cars pulling up uh, with uh, terrorists ready to die and kill anybody who stands in the way. And once they get into a hospital, um, it, it is over. They can kill anybody at will. Um, that's, that's a terrible gap in our preparation. Um, that's comparable to schools not having armed defense. Um, although you don't see too many schools in one building with thousands of unarmed, uh, often uh, disabled victims of opportunity there. That's absolutely right. Uh, Dr. Robert Young with Doctors for Responsible Gun Ownership. Uh, thank you, as always, sir. It is good talking with you today. I appreciate your insight, and I hope that we can talk again uh, after the election when uh, we start to get a better idea of what we're going to be facing here in the months ahead in terms of uh, protecting and defending our Second Amendment rights. But in the meantime, it's good talking with you today, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Appreciate Dr. Young joining us on the program. Look forward to having him back in the uh, near future. Uh, right now, let's turn our attention to our armed citizen story of the day. Our good deed of the day, our recidivist report, we will start there with a uh, story out of Wausau, Wisconsin, where a a teenager has been sentenced in a a baseball bat beating of another teen. Yeah, and uh, this teenager will not be going to jail uh, for his crime. Nope, a judge uh, sentenced Jordan Meyer to six years probation and no prison time. He could have faced three years in prison, and the judge says, listen, if you violate your probation, you're going to go to prison for up to three years, but uh, Jordan Meyer spared uh, any jail time in the beating of a 15-year-old boy with a baseball bat back in July of 2019. 
Uh, Meyer's accomplice, one of his accomplices anyway, Benjamin Dickinson, Dickerson rather, sentenced to uh, eight months in jail, followed by community service. Uh, two other suspects in the case have uh, their uh, plea hearing scheduled for November 3rd uh, and November 18th, respectively. The uh, 15-year-old uh, suffered some pretty severe injuries uh, in that uh, baseball bat beating. Again, one of the individuals responsible sentenced to eight months in jail. And uh, so far, one of them has managed to avoid jail time altogether. Uh, our armed citizen story of the day from the uh, Democrat and Chronicle in uh, Rochester, New York, where a uh, homeowner shot a burglar uh, early on Tuesday morning in the uh, town of Webster, New York. According to the uh, Democrat and Chronicle, Webster Police Chief Joseph Rieger says officers were called to a home uh, just before 1.30 Tuesday morning. Rieger said it appears that the homeowner, quote, encountered and shot an alleged burglar uh, in an outbuilding. So this was not in the residence itself, but in a uh, garage barn uh, there in the property. The injured man suffered serious injuries, taken to a local hospital for treatment, uh, where he's listed in a critical condition. Officers have not released the uh, name of the uh, uh, burglar or the uh, homeowner. They are still investigating, but at this point... Looks like a case of self-defense. We'll keep our eyes on this story. We'll give you any more details as they become available. And finally, our good deed of the day. Uh, this story from the uh, Tuscaloosa News in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where a uh, neighbor in the right place at the right time and willing and able to do the right thing to help save a woman from a uh, house fire that just absolutely destroyed uh, her her residence. 67-year-old Kathy Griffin shared the mobile home with her daughter and grandchildren. There's not much left now, but she says that uh, life would be even worse were it not for the actions of her neighbor. A neighbor, by the way, that she had never met. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Griffin says she reacted. I mean, she didn't even know. Didn't know me or who lived in the home. She just reacted. And I may have seen the fire in time to have done something, but you know, I'd hate to think that I would have gone through that first hour by myself. Kathy Griffin uh, lived in a home that uh, belonged to her parents who died a couple of years ago. She continued to live there with her daughter and three grandchildren. And uh, back on October the 6th, she was uh, at home alone in her living room talking with one of her daughters on the phone. She saw a bright flash of light. She said it was like somebody out there with a big flashlight. I couldn't figure out until later that it was the fire. Uh, meanwhile, a, a neighbor, 25-year-old Patience G Gian Casper, yeah, I'm going to butcher this. I'm sorry, Patience. Patience John Caspro. Yeah, John Caspro. Smelled smoke as she was coming home from work. She said, I smelled it before I saw it. I started looking around. I could see the smoke, and I was like, I was freaking out. I was like, oh, my God. So I ran over there, and you could definitely tell at that point it was fire. It was definitely going. So Patience called 911. She beat on the front door, checked to see if anybody was inside. Nobody came to the door. Rather than just assume, all right, well, everybody's out. She then went around to the back of the home where the smoke was coming from to see if maybe there was somebody out trying to extinguish the blaze. Nope, nobody there. She returned to the front, kept beating on that front door until finally it was opened by Kathy Griffin. She said, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know who this woman was who was banging on my door. She said, I thought maybe she had an emergency. And it was me who had the emergency. Uh, one of Kathy Griffin's dogs inside the home, they were able to get the pet outside safely. Uh, Gian Caspero attempted to retrieve Griffin's purse and car keys, but at that point, the the home was too engulfed. She said, my heart was breaking for her. She is so sweet. She's a lot stronger, honest to God, than I would ever have been. And uh, Patience 
stayed and comforted her neighbor as the first responders arrived. Kathy Griffin said she stayed with me. She brought me a chair to sit in, brought me a Coke. She was with me. She held my hand just like she had known me forever. She said, I, I, I don't know. I just felt secure. Patience, Gian, I did it again. Sorry, Patience. Patience, Gian Caspro moved to uh, Cottondale about four months ago from the uh, Gulfport, Mississippi area. She uh, was actually a volunteer firefighter for about two years, uh, about five years ago. Uh, she said there was a different experience, though, but never been with somebody like Griffin. Watched them as their property burned down. She said, all I wanted to do was listen to her talk. She said it seemed like uh, that would be the best way to help Griffin cope with the situation. She said, I think that way she didn't lose it all at once. All I could think about was her and what she was going through. Well, since that fire, Kathy Griffin says that she has uh, just been overwhelmed over the response from the uh, uh, church community that she has and the uh, uh, members of the Cottondale community. Fundraiser created to uh, benefit Griffin and her family. Uh, so far, more than $2,000 of the $3,500 goal has been raised. And um, friends, church family, and others have pitched in to help do repairs on a mobile home that she lived in before. She moved into the home that was occupied by her parents. So hopefully life is going to uh, turn around here soon for Kathy Griffin. And in large part, I think it is um, because of the efforts of that neighbor who she'd never met. Patience, Gian Caspro. I did it that time, Patience. In the right place, at the right time, unable able to do the right thing. And we thank you for your very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. Now, coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to be delving into the uh, rumors of more shenanigans by the ATF. Are they getting ready to simply uh, ban uh, all uh, pistol braces and all AR and AK style pistols with braces attached? Going to delve into that discussion on the next edition of Cam and Company. Until then, don't forget, you can uh, follow us, subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube or Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, if you want to get the audio version. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, be free, and we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company.